you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Since the very beginning of creation, humanity has struggled to trust God as king over their lives. Adam and Eve decided not to believe the word of their creator king and disobeyed him. Not only did that have implications for them, but for all of creation as it was plunged into a fall into sin from their previous gracious paradise. Now they would live not in that paradise, not in a world filled with intimate love and pleasure with God, but now they would live in a world full of sin, death, discouragement, and destruction. In fact, so sinful became humanity in their rebellion against the kingship of God that God eventually purposed to destroy humanity itself. As a holy God, He would have been completely just in wiping out all of humanity at that time and never looking back. But in His grace, He decided to use one man named Noah. And constructing a large ark as God commanded, God preserved humanity and creation through a global flood through Noah and his family. He began again, as it were, through Noah and his family to rebuild humanity. Nevertheless, sin was not done away with. Sin still existed in the human heart. And so years later, as humanity was driven by God to spread out across the globe, God continued to fulfill his plan to redeem people from sin by calling out of sin, out of a pagan idolatry, calling out to a man who did not know him, a man named Abraham, that he might worship and serve the one true and living God. God established a special covenantal relationship with him, promising to bless Abraham and through Abraham to bless all the nations of the earth. God was faithful to his promise and continues to still be faithful to that promise. And from Abraham, he began to bring descendants that brought about a large nation that came to be known as the people of Israel. And through no fault of their own, they found themselves as slaves in Egypt. But God again remembered His promise and redeemed them out of their slavery through the prophet Moses. And then entered into another covenant with this large people, the descendants of Abraham, the nation of Israel. But it wasn't long again. For the sinfulness of the human heart revealed itself and Israel began to rebel against God's kingship over their lives. Through it, though promising to do all that the Lord asked, They got progressively worse and worse as they sunk lower and lower into sin, even while God showed them grace after grace after grace, raising up judges to lead them in their midst and to free them from the oppression of the pagan peoples that surrounded them. This is where we left the story of God the last time that we were in this series. The series is called According to Plan. And what we are doing is looking at each book of the Bible uh, as it comes within the historic uh, storyline that the Bible gives to us. And so each week we are looking and seeing what is God doing to further His plan to redeem humanity from sin. And the last time we left off, it was in the book of Judges, not... Actually, it was in the book of Ruth, but it takes place during the time of the Judges. And it was not a very pleasant time to think about. It was a time of great wickedness within Israel. And yet, even then, through Ruth, there was this glimmer of hope that God was doing something. He was doing something in the midst of all this sin to still redeem a people for Himself. 
The judges, the, the author of Judges tells us on a couple of occasions, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Not exactly what you want to have as a label on God's people. But don't let that verse fool you. You might hear that verse, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, and you may say, ah, oh, because there was no king, because there was no monarchy in Israel, there wasn't any rule of law, there wasn't any direction, the people lacked leadership, and that's why they did whatever was right in their own eyes. Well, it's true that there was no king in Israel. They had no monarchy, but, but what we need to see and what we need to understand, what even some of the judges understood was... The real truth of that statement was there was no king in Israel. It means God was not seen as their king. For it didn't matter if they had a king or not. It didn't matter if there was a man on a throne with a crown who was called the king of Israel. The Lord God himself was to be seen and worshipped and served as the king over his people. His leadership was being refused and that is why the people did what was ever was right in their own eyes. And this morning, this is where we pick up the story. We pick up the story in the scriptures with the book of 1 Samuel or as my European friends say, 1 Samuel. And you can pick however you want, okay? But this is where we pick up and it's this theme of kingship that becomes very important in this book and in the plan of God. The story begins in answer to the prayers of a woman named Hannah whom God gives... A son, though previously she herself was barren. That son, Samuel, is raised up by God to be, what is in many ways, the final judge and one of the first great prophets in Israel. He was a godly man. He provided leadership for the people, seeking always to bring them back to God, to see them become a faithful people of God. But ultimately, the people were unsatisfied with simply following the Lord. They believed, Israel believed, the solution to all their problems would be solved and be found in a human king to reign from a throne. A king like all the other nations is what they ask for. Now, having a human king wasn't all that bad. In fact, we go back and look at Deuteronomy, a book we've already looked at, and in chapter 17 you will see God knew one day there would be a king. One day he would give a king to Israel to rule over them, and he had laws that governed how that king would rule. But you see, what was bad was the way and the reason in which these people were asking for king. They said, we don't like God as our king. Give us another king. Let us have for ourselves another king over Israel. Well, this bothered Samuel. It disturbed him because he knew what it meant. And yet the Lord said to him, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. The result of the people's choice to have a king for themselves like the other nations was the choosing of a man named Saul as king. A man brought up from obscurity to be the king over Israel. And in many ways, he had lots of things going for him. Chapter 9 tells us that he was an attractive man who was a full head taller than any other man in Israel. Outwardly, he appeared to be a good choice. But it was soon made clear that he was not a godly man. He too rejected God's kingship over his life like the people did. He did what was right in his own eyes rather than obeying the directions God gave him to follow. Thus God's prophet Samuel told Saul in chapter 15, Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. 
he, he puts on a show of obedience before Samuel, and Samuel comes up and he says, why haven't you obeyed the word of the Lord? And Saul says, oh, I did obey the word of the Lord. It was the, the people who refused to obey. And Samuel says, you're the king now. You instruct the people on what to do. You tell them how to obey the Lord. You set the example. You are the sinner here. And he, and he, he goes to leave, and, and Saul reaches out and he grabs the, the cloak of Samuel, and it tears. And Samuel turns around and he says, Just as my cloak has torn in your hands, so God will now tear the kingdom away from you. How, does, how do kingdoms work? How do kings work? It's a monarchy. It passes down from family member to family member to family member, unless someone else comes in and kills the king and takes over, right? And what, what God was telling Saul through Samuel was this. There will never be a descendant of Saul on the throne. Your monarchy will not last. You have shown yourself unfit for service. You have shown yourself not to be a man after my own heart, but a man after the people's heart. A sinful man who rules not with me as king, but rules with himself as king. And chapter 15 ends with both Samuel distraught and upset because of this sin, as well as God upset and sorry because of this sin. And for the rest of the book of Samuel shows Saul's continual slide into sin further and farther away from God, while at the same time, at the same time, we see God rising up for himself, a king after his own heart. And in all this, the one constant that we see, both in the downfall of, king, of Saul as king and the rising up of another king, God's choice for king over Israel, we see the one constant is God himself. In the midst of sin and uncertainty, as well as faithfulness by his people, amidst arguments about kings and leaders and all of these things, the author of 1 Samuel wants us to see and understand for ourselves that regardless of who is sitting on a throne in Israel, the Lord God himself is king over all things, especially his people. And so this morning, as we come to look at this book of 1 Samuel, what we see are characteristics that run through this book that show us this is what the reign of God looks like over his people. This is what it means for God to be king. This is what you can expect. And it's not just true in Israel, but it's true over our lives today. So through the lens of chapter 16, what we want to do is look at these four characteristics that run through 1 Samuel so that we might be encouraged to trust God as our king and to live with God as our king. And what we see, first of all, is the characteristic of hope, of hope. When God is king, there is hope for the people. We see the hope of God's kingship. Chapter 16, verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Now again, why is Samuel grieving? The text is clear. He is grieving over, over Saul, over Saul. He's not weeping because he feels like he did a bad job. He's not weeping because this is going to mean more work for him possibly to come back as a judge. What he is weeping over is the sinful failure of Saul's reign as king in just the early months of his reign. Samuel had already had misgivings about, misgivings about the, this matter of kingship in the first place. He knew that the way it had come about was a sinful way. The people had rejected the Lord as their king. But then God had, had directed Samuel, anoint Saul as king. And for a while, things looked promising. Maybe God would bring good from evil once again. 
But then Saul began to fail miserably. Time and time again, he proved himself a man unworthy to be king over Israel, culminating in his failure to complete the destruction of the, of the Amalekites. God had sent him to wipe out them as a pagan people, bringing the judgment they will face from the future into their present lives, and yet Samuel refused to do it. Or excuse me, Saul refused to do it. And Samuel sees in Saul's refusal to obey the Lord the same sin that he saw in the people. The same sin that he sees day after day after day, and that is we don't want God to be our king. We don't want to do what he says. We don't want to follow his leadership. But now they have a king who is as sinful as they are. A king that God himself has now rejected because of his sinfulness. What's going to happen to the people of Israel? How can they continue to exist if from the top to the bottom they are rejecting God as their king? More than anything, Samuel is grieved by sin. And God says to him, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. God says, just because the king, the people want it failed, it doesn't mean I'm going to leave my people hanging in the wind. Now, now they will have my choice for king over them. They had what they wanted. They had their choice. They had the people's choice. And now, now I'm going to give them my choice. I'm going to give them the king that they always should have had, that I think they should have had. And in this, we see ultimately that the Lord is a God of hope. God's sovereign reign as king gives us hope even in the midst of sin and suffering. For even when the people have completely botched it, even the one who is supposed to be the great leader fails, he sins, he botches it, God still comes in and gives hope to his people. He still comes in and gives us hope for the future. The whole thing reminds me something of Pearl Harbor. You, you remember during our day, our first day of infamy, as it were, Britain had been fighting Hitler for at least two years. And uh, things weren't really going well, frankly. Uh, because of um, the way he was just completely stomping across Europe, it looked as if nothing was going to be able to ultimately stop Hitler from dominating all of Europe. And then Pearl Harbor happened. Hitler's ally, Japan, snuck, uh, uh, did suck in and, and, and attacked us, blindsided us for no apparent reason. And the news came to Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister of England during World War II, and though he was grieved by the loss of life and the, and the disaster of the event, he still is said he a sigh of relief and sat down on the couch amidst all of his planners of the war and said, gentlemen, the war is over. Why? How could he say such a thing? Because he simply knew this. Because of Pearl Harbor, the United States of America would now enter this conflict. And because of the skill and the strength of our military, Hitler's end was more or less assured. Now there was hope for the future. From this great calamity now came hope that things would get better, that ultimately the enemies would be defeated. Likewise, we may find ourselves today like Samuel, looking around at devastation as the result of sin, whether it's in the lives of just this world as a whole or whether it's our lives ourselves 
for the lives of our loved ones. We may be even moved to grief over the devastation that sin has brought, fearful like Samuel of what lies ahead. But as God's people, we should never, never despair because of sin. We should never fear anyone because the Lord alone is king. And because He is the sovereign over all things, He will continue to keep His promises and fulfill His purposes for His people. Therefore, because the Lord is King, we have hope. Hope is a central characteristic theme of God's reign and what we can have in our people. But the second thing that we see that is characteristic of God's kingship is wisdom. Wisdom. We see the wisdom of God's kingship. God tells Samuel that his choice for king can be found in the city of Bethlehem among the sons of a man named Jesse. But immediately Samuel is worried. Now that he has told Saul what the Lord had told him, that the kingdom would not remain with Saul or his family, the prophet is treated with suspicion in the royal court. Verse 2, Samuel said to God, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Samuel does what the Lord says and expectantly waits for Jesse and his sons to arrive. And you can imagine how he's feeling. He's, he's, he's anointed one king and he's turned out to be a mess and a, and a wreck. And now Samuel is just so defeated in his spirit and he's worried, he's grieved over the sins. Like, What's going to happen to Israel? What's going to happen to God's people? And now God says, look, stop your belly aching, Samuel. Who's king? Who is king? I am. And I've got another king. Now, my choice for king, and here's what it is. You go up here, you offer the sacrifice, Jesse's sons are going to come out, and I'm going to show you which one of them is going to be king, my king for the people. So you can imagine. You can imagine as, as Jesse comes and they're consecrated, and the sacrifice is offered, and they've enjoyed the meal, the fellowship meal. Now, now here they come, and, and Samuel's excited. Which one is it going to be? Which, which of the sons is going to be the future king of Israel? The text says in verse 6, when, when Jesse and his sons, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Now what's, what I find very interesting is basically when you, Samuel's one of those guys, when you, when you see what is shown of him in the Bible, there's very, few, there's very few missteps in his life. In fact, he functions as, as almost a personification of God throughout the books, throughout the book of 1 Samuel. Whenever you want to know how God should react and what, what God desires, you've got Samuel there as his representative. And he almost always gets it right, except for this chapter. And twice now, he's messed it up. He starts off, he starts off, he's like, oh, what, you know, what's going to happen? And, and God's like, dude, Samuel. You know, you told the people I was king. Don't you believe that? Okay, yeah, you're right. Now, fine, go up and anoint this other guy. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. I mean, Saul's going to find out about it, and he's going to kill me. Dude, Samuel, come on. Hello, are you there? What did I just say? Who is king? Don't worry about Saul. The kingdom's not his anymore. I'm telling you what to do. And then for a third time, he sees this guy, Eliab, and he looks at his appearance, and he says, oh, yeah, that's, that's the guy. That's the guy. But you know what? He misses it, doesn't he? He misses it. Why? 
Because you're thinking to yourself, Did, didn't we already see this show? Remember how Saul was described? He was described as, as well, I'll just read, or just read the passage. It's, it's verse 2 of chapter 9. Saul was a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. That's why the people took one look at this guy and said, yeah, that's our king. Look at that guy. And now the same thing is happening. Eliab, the oldest son, the good looking, the, 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 the beefcake comes up and Samuel says, surely that guy has got to be king. And it's like, Samuel, didn't you, didn't you learn something from the first time around? Samuel lacks wisdom, but the Lord doesn't. And in fact, it's the wisdom of God that saves Israel from Saul part two. Listen to what he says. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord looks on the heart. In his commentary on this book, Dale Ralph Davis calls this really the key text of First and Second Samuel. And it's easy to see why. When you go back through, the entire book is all about, you see man seeing and making mistakes, but God looking on the heart and seeing what's right. The very beginning of the book, again, it, it opens with this woman weeping in the city. Why? Because her husband, number one, has done something he shouldn't have done, and that is marry two women. And the second wife has been very fertile and has borne him many kids. But the first wife, Hannah, is barren. She can't have kids. And the other wife is all the time taunting her. You know, it's like, look what I've done for our husband. What have you done lately? You know, you're just taking up space. I'm the one pumping out kids here. Well, what are you doing? And it, it brings her to tears and she goes and the Bible says she, she pours out her soul before the Lord in front of the temple. And here is old, fat, blind Eli. And this just shows you how far, how far the Israel has come when the priest is just kind of sitting there in front of the temple. And he kind, of, he kind of wakes up and he sees this woman. And she's weeping and she's muttering, bowing down before the temple. And you know what his first thought is? Hey, we don't like drunk women around here in front of the temple. Get out of here. And she says, please, my Lord, I, I'm not drunk. I am, I am desperate and pleading before the Lord that he might give me a son. He says, oh, okay, well, well, God answer your request. Just totally blind spiritually. Just looking at the outward appearance. But God looks on the heart. And he sees the heart of Hannah. And he blesses her. And he gives her a son that winds up being Samuel, this great judge and prophet. The people looked at the outward appearance of Saul as well, accepting him as king. But the Lord looked on his heart and saw a man unfit for leadership. Later in 2 Samuel, people will look at Absalom, one of David's descendants, and they will see great beauty and think, this man, this is Mr. Israel. He might be a good king. But God says, no, I have looked on the heart and found a wretched sinner. And even here, the Lord tells Samuel, a good leader isn't revealed on what's on the outside. It's what's in the heart that matters. And as we think about that, as we think about that as people who live in a culture that is obsessed with the externals and appearances, what, what better message could there be for us to take away ringing in our ears today? Both in the church and outside of the church, we, we like a good show, as it were. I mean, you think about it. We are quick to, draw, to judge men worthy of our appreciation and respect, sometimes even our adoration as godly examples because of nothing but the externals of their life. We look at someone's physical appearance or the size of their ministry and we say, oh yeah, man of God, I should do what he does. I should, I should listen to what he says. 
We look at the letters behind someone's name or the number of books that bear their name. And we, we think, oh yeah, oh yeah, man of God, I should, I should do what he says. I should follow his example. We're often drawn to charismatic personalities, people that have a lot of pizzazz and a lot of energy. And we say, oh yeah, yeah, they, 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 they made me laugh. They kept my attention. A man of God, we should listen to what he says. And the whole time the Lord is saying, no, you look on the heart. What is their character like? What is their personality like? It doesn't matter how well we present ourselves before others, how put together we look, the Lord looks on the heart. And therefore, we have to start with ourselves, don't we? We have to ask ourselves, what does God see in our own heart? What does He see when He looks there? Do do we love Him? Do do we really? Do Do we worship Him and serve Him as King? Or are we like Samuel? everyone else around or like Saul rather we we look we look great we look we look beautiful and we look impressive spiritually but on the inside we're, we're rot we're rot God looks on the heart and as a result he displays the wisdom of his kingship the third thing that we see that's endemic that's characteristic of his reign as king is grace we see the grace of God's kingship. Jesse's oldest son has just been rejected. He had all the obvious qualifications, but God told Samuel, it's not him. Samuel takes the Lord's gentle rebuke and begins looking on the other sons. And in verse 8 we read, Then Jesse called out Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Seven sons, seven misses. You can imagine Samuel's getting a little confused at this point. He's thinking to himself, now I, I think I got this right. Go up to Bethlehem. Yep, Bethlehem. Jesse, yeah, that's Jesse. Off of the sacrifice. The sons are going to come out and God's going to tell me this is the king. Uh, what's, what's wrong? What's happening here? And so, you know, with, with I think a, a little bit of perplexity, the text says, Samuel said to Jesse, uh, are all your sons here? It's like, you know, I'm expecting something at this point. Now, Jesse's turn to be confused. Well, yeah, I mean, I've got one more son, but he's not important. Why, why do you want to look at him? Verse 11, there remains the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now, this boy was ready and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise. Anoint him, for this is he. This last son is by no means the runt of Jesse's sons. After all, even his appearance was every bit as good as Saul's, except for the height. Uh, He's pictured as this beautiful, slightly red-colored young man, but he is the youngest in his family. At At this point, the boy is seen as the least important in all of his family. Even Jesse can't see anything important in him. The prophet's coming. We're having a sacrificial meal with him. Ah, don't bother inviting David. Just, just let him stay out in the fields with the sheep. Yet yeah, this is God's choice for the future king of Israel. And we're reminded again in God's unlikely choice of this young boy, of the grace that he displays in our own life. 
God is the kind of God who takes shepherds from the fields and makes them kings over nations. He is the kind of God who raises up the lowly and brings down the haughty. He is the kind of God who gives grace to those who desperately need it. And again, we see this running throughout the entire book of 1 Samuel. It was lowly Hannah who suffered relentlessly under the taunts of her husband's other wife because of her barrenness, yet God in His grace opened her womb, brought forth from her one of Israel's greatest leaders, the prophet Samuel. No one would have ever looked suspected that looking at her. Here, the least of Jesse's sons, a boy named David, is raised up from the disregard of his family to be Israel's greatest human king. Even more so, in the raising up of, unlike, of the unless, un, this unlikely king in David, God is pointing the way to which he will one day raise up the ultimate king, David's greater son, Jesus Christ, who will be the savior for all men. Just as, prophesied, just as was prophesied years before, uh, before his coming, later than this by the prophet Isaiah, when Jesus was born, he was raised in obscurity. So that when he comes on the scene around 30 years old and begins to say, more or less, I'm the Messiah, get ready for the kingdom of God because it's breaking in right now. And begins teaching with authority and begins healing people by the power of God. People look and say, who is this guy? I mean, who, who does, who, are we wrong here? Isn't this the son of Mary and Joseph? Does this guy come from Galilee? Who does he think he is? What's going on here? Yet it was this lowly son of a carpenter who was more than that. He was, in fact, the very Son of God whom God raised up to save His people from their sins. From obscurity to eternal glory, Christ was raised up to die on the cross in atonement for sinners that they might be made right with God. And that gracious, gracious raising of the lowly is further seen in God's application of that saving work of Christ to His people. We, friends, are nothing but sinners. We deserve nothing Before God, we are the poorest among the poor because even at our best, it's garbage before God. Yet God comes down in His grace and exalts us to the status of royal sons in Christ. He takes what the world looks at and sees as nothing and He makes it great in His kingdom. That is how He reigns. That is what His kingdom looks like. It is a kingdom full of grace for the lowly. And finally, we see that God is a God of provision. In God's reign as king, He provides for the the needs of His people. We see the provision of God's kingship as the last characteristic here. Verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Though just a teenager, David is anointed as king of Israel. Now that does not mean he became king. Saul was still king. He was still on the throne. He still had the crown. Nevertheless, the Spirit of God, God's provision for kingship came upon David. It says it rushed upon him like a mighty wind would seek to to rush uh, through, through the woods. The Spirit then is God's provision that as he grows, David will experience training and empowerment and character building that he might lead God's people the way God would desire him to be led. In just the next verse, we read that same Spirit of God. When it fell upon David, it left Saul. And because of Saul's unbelief, he was no longer empowered by God to fulfill his duties as king. And the result is that he becomes unhinged. 
When the spirit of leadership rises off of Saul, a, a, a vexing spirit is sent in his place that causes him to be troubled in his soul, to be worried not only about his own sinfulness, but to feel guilt and paranoia. And he begins to focus that attention on David. He realizes this is his enemy because this is God's choice for king. He begins to despise David. On more than one occasion, he attempts to kill him. Nevertheless, the Lord is with David through it all. You see, he had made provision for the difficulty that would lay ahead for David. When David was forced to flee from his home, to live out on the run, hiding in caves, all the while waiting in line to ascend to the throne of Israel, when he is under attack and persecution from Saul and his armies, the Lord has provided for his protection. He has provided for his safety. He has provided for his ability to live even in abandonment as the king of Israel because he gave him his spirit. David didn't just rely on his wits and courage. God gave him his spirit to empower him for the task of leading. And what we see is that whether he's on the throne or whether he's in a cave, he is provided with what he needs to be the king of God's people. And David's experience was the same for those unique leaders who under the old covenant were especially set apart and given provision by God to do their tasks. Priests, prophets, kings, and a few others who knew the power of the Spirit in their lives. It's what the old Puritans and men like Spurgeon and Lloyd-Jones call unction. Now, I, I, I can see by the looks on your face, this, I had the same response. A couple years ago when we were teaching the college age class. And one time, actually it was like three weeks in a row, for whatever reason, I prayed that the minister that was getting ready to present the word would know unction in the pulpit. And finally I prayed and we started to pack up and this girl said, um, John, what, what in the world is unction? Have you been praying this for a while? We have no idea what this is. What is it? And, and everybody was kind of like, yeah, yeah, we, we want to know. What is this? Well, it, it, simply this unction is simply, unction simply means anointing. It simply means anointing. To have unction is to have an evident empowering of God's Spirit. So when Christ began His ministry in Matthew 4, the Spirit descended upon Him, empowering Him for His ministry as the Messiah. And much like David before Him, who after being anointed, immediately faced difficulty from Saul, Christ Himself immediately faced trials. He was driven out into the wilderness to face temptation by the devil himself. Yet God provided the means for his triumph because of the anointing of the Spirit. And you must get this. Part of the glory of the new covenant is this, that today as believers on this side of the cross, we are also on this side of Pentecost. And on that day, God's Spirit was poured out in equal measure upon every one of God's people, fulfilling the prophecy of Joel about the glory of the new covenant in Christ. So if you are in Christ today, if you are a Christian today, you have the same provision that David had and that Christ himself had. You have been anointed by God's Spirit, empowered to fight tooth and claw against sin and live lives pleasing to a holy God. Not as a means of salvation, but as a means of honoring the King who gave you salvation as an act of His grace. This is why Paul says in Galatians 5, no, he commands... Walk by the Spirit. Walk by the enabling power, the provision that God has given you so that you can say no to sin, so that you can live as the people under God's reign. 
And the more we find ourselves guided by God's leadership, the more we find ourselves living as loyal subjects to the king, the more that king will be honored with our lives. Probably the most famous story of 1 Samuel is the story of David and Goliath. Here is this massive, literally gigantic man who comes out with, and what's interesting, especially in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, and really the whole Bible, clothing is not important unless the author spends time describing it. Okay? So if he begins like with Goliath saying, the spear weighed this much, and the helmet was made from this, and the shirt, you say, oh, this must be important. For Goliath, it meant here's this man who stands enormously taller than anybody else and who comes weighed down like a panzer tank advancing on the armies of Israel. And he says, look, let's just cut to the chase. Instead of the Philistine, my Philistine brothers coming out, instead of you Israelite dogs coming out and us going out in the valley here, how about I just stand as as Philistia's champion? And you, Israel, you pick for yourselves a champion. And mano a mano, single combat, it will decide how this battle is going to go. Now, the ironic thing is this. Back in chapter 8, when the people are saying, give us a king like the other nations, you know very specifically what they ask for? Give us a king that will fight our battles for us. That's the exact wording in my translation. And guess what they have in Saul? man who cowers in fear in his tent. And instead of taking up faith in God and going out and doing what he is tasked to do as king, he offers rewards for somebody else who will take up his position. You know how the story goes. The young boy who has been anointed king over Israel comes simply to give food and provision to his brothers, and he hears about what this guy is doing. Specifically what gets him angry is that he has defied the name of the Lord God. And he says, fine, I'll do it. I'll do it. Everybody's like, get out of here. What is the matter with you? And he says, send me out there. So they take him to the king. He's like, well, you can't go out there like that. Here, wear this armor. And basically, what are they trying to do? They're trying to dress him up just like Goliath. And David says, I can't wear this. You're crazy. I can barely move. He says, I'm going to do what I do all the time, and that is use my slingshot to ward off the wild animals of the field. So he goes out there. And very often we say, oh, David was a man of, of courage. David was a fearless man. But listen to what David says. He says to, the, to Goliath, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give you the dead, I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the field, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. How was Abel? How was David able to face Goliath? Because he believed God was king. More than anything else, he said, God is king. Therefore, his name shall not be defied in my presence, and I will completely trust in him. It was the Lord who would deliver Goliath into David's hands. It was the Lord who would give victory in battle. And I fear it is so easy for us to forget that. It's so easy for us to try to minister to each other and to reach this city depending on programs and strategies instead of recognizing the battle for the sinful heart belongs to the Lord. It doesn't mean we don't go and fight. 
It just means we don't rely on ourselves. We don't rely on our wisdom and what we think is best. We rely on God. It's so easy to try and grow in holiness by relying on our own strength. We forget so often in every area of our life, the battle belongs to the Lord. He is the king. Therefore, let us not forget, but instead let us live our lives trusting the Lord as king and serving him as king and the strength that he provides. Let's pray. Father, we will come before you rejoicing. Father, even as king, you do not you do not call us to any task that you are not prepared to equip us for. Father, you don't call us to do crazy and insane things, things that we know going in. We're no, there's no way we're going to be able to do this. Because, Father, you have made provision for us. Where you have called us to go, where you have commanded us to go, where you as king have told your servants to go and proclaim your kingdom. Father, you have given us all that we need that we might obey. Father, we pray that we would live lives of faith, that we would live lives that display a trust in you as our king. Father, we ask all this in the name of our risen king, Jesus the Christ. Amen. This morning in response to the message, I invite you to stand and sing with us, O Father, you are sovereign.